Thank you for listening to the Smoke Hole Sessions. They were inspired by my new book, Smoke Hole, Looking to the Wild in the Time of the Spyglass, which is available from all good bookshops. thing, almost an impossible thing, to track the great god Dionysus. They call him the two-horned one, the roarer, the fox. They call him the fox because the Greeks used to see foxes gobbling the uh, grapes and they said, oh, there he is. We think we know a little bit about the wine god. He's uh, wild rituals out in the bush and the frenzied dancing, but that's just the very tip of what he is about. The vastness of himself, the vastness of Dionysus, is by necessity hidden from public view. It's underground and tucked away. He had a mad, huge following, but there wasn't a centralised, franchised priesthood. So the rituals are organic, they're kind of reflexive, and site-specific. You could think of them as a kind of movable phenomena. And even, even his birthplace won't stay still. Does he come from central Greece? Does he come from Ethiopia? Does he come from Asia Minor? These are conversations that scholars have to this day. Whatever is going on, Dionysus is constantly rubbing out the trail behind him with a leopard's tail. And I reckon if you were actually lucky enough to catch him standing still for even a second, you'd see that really his form is writhing with smaller deities. I am looking now, I am looking now, I am looking now, and I see positively antiquated cave beings. I can see goddesses of springs and sweet grasses. There's flanks of growling lions. There's big horny bulls. And there's snakes passing through the dark curls of his hair. And, and he brings peace and humility. Though no one ever seems to remember that with all the excess flying around him. So everything around him is moving. But within him, there's a still point. There was no rock and roll band anywhere more Dionysian than The Doors. We all know that. And our guest today, the drummer with The Doors, and my dear friend John Densmore, I think is that still point in all the chaos. He is a true resident of the city of Los Angeles, uh, born December 1st, 1944. Of course, we all know him as the most remarkable of drummers, but he's also an author, an actor, a songwriter. He's hard to pin down too, actually, it occurs to me now. I loved this conversation that we had, the last of the Smoke Hole sessions for now. It's two guys that care about each other a lot, just hunkering down and talking about things that they love. And in a time like that, it may not be such a bad thing to listen in. (laughs) 
So, friends, let's enjoy our time with John Densmore. How's it in England? It's It looks like we're just beginning, possibly, uh, to see a slight change in circumstance. I did my first live event ah. for about 12 months. On Saturday, I was in front of real human beings at a little bit of a distance. They ah. shouted and cheered and made ah. booing sounds and got emotional. <laughs> and it was, it was a fantastic experience. Yeah. I couldn't believe how much I'd missed it. Playing the drums was like being reunited with, Ooh. you know, the great love you'd almost forgotten about. The pandemic, you know, has been so tragic. And uh, but this camaraderie of the of the sonic campfire. Oh, boy, have we missed that. God, you know, 12 people or 12,000. It's just this yearning for a community to share dancing and music and. Boy, I didn't realize how important it was. You live in an area. I mean, that's the thing. You've what's so wonderful for me is Los Angeles was opened up for me by a proper resident. I mean, that's where you were born, wasn't it? And my mother was born here in 1904. Wow. But we're not native. The <laughs> Chumash were the first peoples. Yeah. I can't help but want to ask all the drumming questions that people don't normally ask uh, in this great litany of interviews. Uh, and I know we know each other well enough for you to say, I'm not interested in that question. Well, I mean, you do see my kit That's it. sitting there behind me. And what, the, what the, the listeners can't see but I can see is a sign behind your head, Morrison Street, Densmore Avenue. I was born in L.A. and... Of course, I knew Densmore Street in the San Fernando Valley. And a few years ago, I had a little time and I thought, hey, well, I'm going to make a right turn and go up Densmore Street just for the hell of it. See what's up there. A mile up, Densmore crosses Morrison. Now, when did they name these streets, Martin? <laughs> Hundreds of years ago. <laughs> I was rather pleased at that. Only the two signs were not on the same pole. Right. And we called the mayor of Los Angeles, and the mayor let us put them together and take a photo. And then we made these up for fun. But anyway, um, it feels pretty prophetic that uh, Densmore crosses Morrison Street in the uh, city of the L.A. woman. Wow. Martin, can we talk about, um, before we get into more drums, The Handless Maiden and your uh, your new book, what is it called? Smoke Hole. Smoke Hole, yeah. Yeah. I just I just love the, uh, the metaphor kind of coming out of the pandemic is growing our hands back. Wasn't that? That's exactly it. Can you break it. that down just a little bit? Well, I noticed over in the UK at least, the government message constantly over the last year was don't touch anything. Uh, and if you do touch anything, wash your hands as quickly as possible. Right. And of course, my mind started running with that old fairy tale that you and I have worked on together over the years in live situations where this woman goes through all these travails and slowly grows her hands back. 
And I started to think then, well, when we begin to come out of this, maybe not into the life we've had before, but something possibly even more interesting, how do we do it? And of course, I always think of you and me because we're drummers and our hands are everything. Growing our hands back for me means being around musicians again, being around people and reaching out towards the world, which we hope we do throughout our lives, has been something that I'm really interested in. Uh, I did my first live event for seemingly an eternity on Saturday. And one of the questions I was asking folks is, how have you managed to grow your own hands back as we begin to come out of this thing? Yeah. Uh, where I think of you, you do so many different things. I think of you as a, a writer. I think of you, of course, as a drummer. One of the great ensemble drummers I've ever heard, actually. Oh! Well, it's true. I know you... I know, helium! You don't like... Helium upstairs. I appreciate your resistance to helium. Okay, I accept it. Good. I'm, I'm fucking brill. Got Thank it. you. At last. At last it's out. It's public. Well, I was thinking about uh, what I do with my hands as we come out of this pandemic. It's, it's interesting. A friend of mine years ago said to me that my hands are smarter than I am. I thought, ooh, that, that's, I'll take that. But um, what struck me after uh, reading your book and, and the Handless Maiden tale and the pandemic was how if the earth, Gaia, if she's had her our foot on her chest and she just, no disrespect to all the tragedy, but with this pandemic, she just snipped off to a toe of that foot to wake us up. Then as we come back, maybe we get the message that she's an abused woman and we treat her with real gentle hands, you know? And then we might, uh, might make it. As as, uh, as Mali Domo Somme said, the, the, uh, saving the earth is an arrogant, centrist uh, statement. The earth will be fine. We, <laughs> we've got to kind of shore up our end. Anyway, enough soapbox. <laughs> Did life for you change much in the last 12 months? Not that much because, you know, I've been a writer the last 10, 20 years, and that's kind of reclusive monk-like. It certainly was even more monk-like, but um, a lot of interior work, a lot of mulling around and, and, and slowing down, like forced to slow down. And that's a message, you know? It's like, of course, smell the roses, dude. Come on, you know? <laughs> how, how, is, how is Conch, your dog, doing? Oh, well, Conch passed. Oh. Yeah. But it's, it's really interesting that you asked. Conch made it to 105 in human years, if you multiply it. Okay, so we knew. I mean, I, he barely could walk anymore. And then uh, finally one day, he wouldn't eat. I mean, he would not eat or drink. That's it. And I'm sure he was like, I'm a dog and I can't walk. I'm done. I'm out of here, you know. And so we had the vet come to the house to put him down. 
And this is what's so amazing. He's in the backyard with Ildiko. Ildiko, speaking of hands, she has the hot hands, you know, the healing mm. hands. She's got her hands on conch. And the vet will be here in a half hour. And then I hear her yelling, John, we got to take him in. And I run out real worried. And there's a swarm of bees up over his head. What? Okay. So we grab the blanket and put him in the house. And I say to Ildiko, you know, uh, the vet's really cool. I like her very much. She'll be wearing a mask. This was a few months ago, so it's a little more scary with the pandemic. Uh, I, I wanted to do this outside. Let's put him on the front porch. We put him on the front porch. The vet comes. She puts him out. We're holding him. Carrie Otis was there, too, to witness this, thank goodness. Within 30 seconds, there is about 20 or 30 swallows up over the porch, circling around. And then within a minute or two, there's two red-tailed hawks above the swallows circling around for a friggin' several minutes. And the vet, she says, is this dog spiritual or something? <laughs> and we go, yeah, yeah. And then a day or two later, they know stuff we don't know. If the bees hadn't come, it wouldn't have got us to bring the dog onto the front porch under the swallows and red-tailed hawks. I, I, that's the story, but there's some, some stuff going on there that mm. privy mm. to animals. Yes, uh, my own my own cat Bessie died at a similarly ripe old age a few months ago, and uh, there been there was any number of sort of mystical, interesting encounters with animals in and around that death. Yeah, uh, and I was talking to an actor who was on here the other day, Mark Rylance. Same thing had just happened to him with his little hound had passed. I mean, the bees were in communication with the swallows and the hawks. I, <laughs> so, how did it how did it feel putting a book out in a time like this? It was a struggle. I kept lobbying for for the spring, this spring, uh, but they had you know it's a big company. I went with the Hachette. There's only five big publishers and. I self-published my last one. And so this one, I got, okay, uh, I got an okay deal. And, you know, they, they still, you know, um, yeah, what can I say? It's dealing with the corporate world. Uh, and, and they really felt like there was a window and, and Christmas was coming and we, we got to do the fall. And we did. And I did all kinds of Zoom online interviews. And, and it did okay. It didn't go through the roof, but it did well. And now the paperback is coming in the fall. This book, uh, Meetings with Remarkable Musicians, a, a play on Gurdjieff's Meetings with Remarkable Men. Uh, in the acknowledgments, I, 
I told a story about how Gurdjieff uh, would have some followers meet him in a bar, and then he'd go, no, 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 this is no good. we got to go somewhere else. And then uh, uh, he'd lose a few people. And then the second bar, sorry, no, this is not it. Next. The third bar, one in the morning, the stragglers that are left, he imparts the real stuff, you know. <laughs> and so quoting that story at the end of the acknowledgments, I say, for you stragglers that are hanging on to this uh, <laughs> scribbling of mine, I'm a work in progress. I always want more, but I am very grateful. Can you tell us, because I imagine that there's probably a lot of European readers that will be, will be leaping on the paperback in the autumn. Could you tell us a little bit about the book? Sure. I wanted to give a tip of the hat to various artists who fed me. And it turned out to be a very diverse lot mm. <laughs> from Lou Reed to my mom. <laughs> of course. <laughs> my mom was a painter. And Bob Marley, Ravi Shankar, Gustavo Dudamel, the conductor of the LA Philharmonic. And so it's interesting. I'm writing the second chapter on Elvin Jones, yeah. Coltrane's drummer, my mentor, who I saw many times live. And it hits me. Oh, okay. The first drum beat that all of us ever heard was in the womb. Mom, you know? <laughs> And then I thought, oh, that's why I'm writing about my mom and I have her first, you know, came mm. out of her canal. Mm. And, and we're in there as a fetus with our own beat. So we've already got little polyrhythms going on, you know. <laughs> that was a revelation. And then I quoted uh, Thelonious Monk, who had this incredible 10 tips for, for musicians. And the very first tip was a musician has to have a good sense of time, especially if he's not the drummer. Oh, Thelonious, that's so brilliant. Because, uh, uh, you know, a guitar player or a sax solo could be technically going crazy, but if they don't have the internal metronome, the homeland security, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's some of what that book's up to. <laughs> I want to hear about your book a little too. Is this not all me, right? Well, you we both know that books can be sometimes the the incubation process is long, sometimes it's short. The idea for the book occurred to me round a fire, and within a week or so, most of it had landed on the page, which is kind of unusual. I'm used to books taking anything up to five years. But I wanted something that was a little bit like, do you remember the magic of a single? Yeah. Well, you know, the difference between a, a, you know, a progressive rock double album, there comes a day when you can't bear it anymore <laughs> and you want to hear the Kinks or the Yardbirds or the Who. You want something more <laughs> succinct. I have a memory, actually, of the two of us when you first very kindly, as you have done many times, hosted me. You and I, we were driving, you know, we went down to Patrick's Roadhouse, turned right, we're heading up to Topanga. It's dusk. The sea is doing that marvellous sea thing. We put the radio on and <laughs> slightly to your horror, light my fire. 
bang, it's just on. And you, were, <laughs> you, you raised one eyebrow and kind of reached your hand to the volume control. And I just said, please, John, let me have this moment. Let me have this moment. <laughs> and you said, all right, it's okay. And so we cranked it up uh, and went off. And it was a, a great thing. So I have a love of I have a love of things that are compact and pithy as well as long and rambling and I've done plenty of long and rambling in my life. <laughs> so it was a short book and it's written for everybody. It's written for the guy that's serving behind the bar down at Patrick's Roadhouse. It's designed for mm. anybody really with an interest in the story of their own life and it was this one moment where I thought goodness Almost everybody we know is going through some kind of encounter with COVID or the idea of it. And that notion we talked about earlier on, growing your hands back, that's the first bit of the book. The second bit of the book is called Breaking Enchantments because having been alone in a cottage for a year, I realized that most of the befuddlement was happening in my own head. Mm. I was spending so much time on my own I was enchanting myself, let alone anybody else, and not in a good way. And then thirdly, the last bit of the book is called Kicking the Robbers Out of the House. And it was a kind of cautionary look at social media because I wondered in my world, especially with a, a, a dad and a teenage daughter, how has a tool become a deity? Yeah. There was a sense in the book that our imagination runs the risk of being colonized if we spend too much hunched over machines. It's just that simple, really. So that's the book. It's just come out. And these conversations, which you've, you, know, you and others have been kind enough to have with me, are selfishly designed to get my brain working again after this amount of time in solitude. You know, it's interesting, uh, the worry of technology. The other day someone said to me, our generation, and I'm before you a little, mm. one or two, but music was the glue. Today, technology's the glue for the young people. I'm like, but then my second thought, of course, is that I did not have the discipline as a writer to type over one page for some stupid spelling error. And my laptop did give me the courage to tackle 300 pages several times and I, I never get new equipment or a phone whatever it is unless I have to because I have to learn the new thing and I hate it <laughs> but it, it has been helpful it's I mean you know we wouldn't be doing what we're doing right now without technology Precisely. my god I'm talking to you in England it's fabulous mm. but the trap of course is the machine before uh well when drum machines were invented, Ringo said, I'm the fucking drum machine. <laughs> yes, correct. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the discipline, and you have it, beautiful. You have a beautiful sense of time. The discipline of honing a groove as a drummer, which is our first job, is kind of, if hip hoppers just put on a machine because they have no dough, and I get it, and then they put this beautiful political rap on top and some sexist shit. But that's great. But that discipline of learning to play drums is there's something there that you can't get without, as the Buddhists call, practice. Now, 
I know you're resistant to helium being blown into your brain, but there's a story I've, I've told before, and I, I have to say this because in a way it's me dipping my hat in the way you did in your book to your musical heroes. I have to dip mine too. In the summer of 1989, I was working in a factory. I'd left school with no qualifications and I had to get up very early in the morning, walk to the bus out into the cabbage fields of Lincolnshire and... At the end of the first week, I got paid in a little brown envelope. I got £75, which seemed an extraordinary amount of money. And I went straight to Stanford Music Shop and I bought L.A. Woman. <laughs> and I came back and I sat down. And that was the beginning, really, of this phrase that I used before. I had two things I'd heard in your playing that were the major breakthroughs for me. One was this sense of you as an ensemble drummer. Yeah. You're not like some guy with three bass drums who's just trying to dominate. Right. You're really musical, and your sense of drama is extraordinary. Everybody talks about the way you play ride cymbal. You know, all of that stuff going on. And it sounds to me, from the first time you were in a recording studio, you arrived with a voice. Does that, or did it change over time for you? Yeah, I'm not the fastest drummer. I'm not a solo drummer, really, but I'm an ensemble drummer. As you've experienced me backing you up, yeah. I am with you or Jim's words. I am, I'm just right with it. I, I'm in the moment as much as possible. And what I learned from classical music, I played timpani in the orchestra and I played with the L.A. Phil a year ago or so, L.A. Woman. It was a fundraiser, and what a thrill that was, playing with wow. 80 of the greatest musicians in the world. Dynamics in classical music, I try to bring that into my playing where you have fortissimo and pianissimo. It's a fuller palette, and that's my whole thing, dynamics. Okay real loud, real soft, everything in between. If it's, if it's just one level, then there's not a lot of comparison. Mm. And uh, I, I love, you know, comparison. A few years ago, you had that incredible band Tribal Jazz. Yeah. Are you, <laughs> are you still in touch with them? Is there any chance that I could come and at least be a roadie? <laughs> no, no, that's kind of, passe but it, it was a thrill there's another uh, you know i have a formula for success bob dylan spells it s-u-c-k it's it it's three parts and it's in this order first luck <laughs> meaning timing and you know second chutzpah hustle how much you push third talent why because there's a bunch of really talented people that are starving and a bunch of famous people that are not very talented. <laughs> the uh, tribal jazz was released when downloading just began. Oh, did that throw a curve to the record company? I was real proud to be on hidden beach records, which was all black except for me. And, you know, I have, African drummers in tribal jazz, which, which was such a thrill to, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to play Senegalese rhythms on my kit. And 
and I'm nervous. And later we talked and they were nervous too, looking at each other, the first few bars, whether we were going to be simpatico and smiles came within four bars. And, and, you know, that's, that's the whole deal with music. It crosses borders. You know, maybe it is the only thing left to save our human uh, fighting. We had some great live gigs. It was short lived, but um, I, I'm pleased and I don't think it's coming back. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll bear that disappointment quietly in my little Devon cottage. You have been, every time I've seen you, you've mentioned somebody who in Britain we wouldn't know much, much about, and it's the this composer, uh, not composer, conductor, excuse me. Is it Gustavo Dodamel? Yeah, Gustavo Dodamel. Oh, I'll, let me tell you about him. What a wonder king. He came up in El Sistema. It's a music program in Venezuela. Hugo Chavez was the prez, who was not so great, but they got somebody worse now. But there was this music program, and he kept it going because he noticed that like 7,000 young people, uh, the, the motto of it was, if you get a musical instrument in the hand of a kid soon enough, they won't pick up a gun. And they've affected not 7,000, 700,000 kids in Venezuela. And Gustavo was, you know, very poor kid. And he became assess, obsessed with music. Like uh, he'd set up his little dolls and he'd ask his mom to put on Beethoven and he'd conduct to the, to the little, you know, I saw him conduct as a guest conductor of the LA Philharmonic. Oh my God. I just knew this. this first of all, he conducts everything. If it's a modern composition, no, but, he conducts everything from memory. He doesn't have any sheet music. I mean, backstage, he'll be rumbling through Beethoven's symphony or Mahler, or Mozart, whatever it is. And then he goes out there and it's all in here in his head. The orchestration of a giant orchestra, every friggin' note. <laughs> I mean, I kind of understand, like, you know, you and I both have... I don't know, maybe a thousand songs in our head, you know, that you can kind of, after the first bar or two, it, the whole thing comes. But the, uh, to have giant symphonies is, whew, he's a friggin' genius. Now, here's the other thing about him. When I first met him, I was kind of nervous. I, I didn't know if he'd heard of The Doors or Jim Morrison or any of that. And uh, he, he, he shook my hand and he bowed. He, he wouldn't come up. And so I did the same thing. The two of us were bowing and we've done it ever since, you know, I, I <laughs> see him. And he is completely aware of Led Zeppelin and salsa rock and roll. He's got it all in him and he uses it, which is kind of radical for a, you know, the classical world is tight or, or used to be. Uh, Simon Rattle kind of knows that stuff too, but I'm backstage. Gustavo comes back and he's just finished conducting and he says, Juan, Juan, Mahler, Mahler is heavy metal. <laughs> I'm like, what? And he recognized that and used that in the way he conducted. 
Oh my God. I mean, that's, that's rad. And it made me think about how I, I, I saw Coltrane live and I, I saw classical music and I, I don't, you know, try and copy Coltrane or classical music, but I let the effect wash over me. Mm. And then it comes out in my genre. Mm. So I'm more dynamic in rock and roll. Or I got that jazz ride symbol I cop from a bunch of guys. You know, you know it, it infiltrates. And uh, you use what you can. And Gustavo used uh, heavy metal for a minute there to kind of, for a feel. I mean, I've heard him say to the orchestra, um, we're doing great in a rehearsal, but we need more blood. We need more meat. <laughs> Stuff like that which no conductor would say, they would say, please, a little more fortissimo, you know. Yeah, yeah. Is there anybody uh, out there at the moment that you'd like to play with? Yeah, Bob Dylan. <laughs> Just out of respect for the giant catalog that he has amassed over, uh, it's not going to happen. Although I am very pleased. I know his um, daughter-in-law. She gave him the book and she said, John, don't expect there will be no feedback, but he's, he has it. So that pleases me. Did you catch him jogging once? <laughs> yeah. He, he was at, when we were inducted in the rock and roll hall of fame and it was the same year cream was inducted. Uh, he was backstage as kind of a groupie. He wasn't, honored but he was there i mean dressed almost unrecognizable i knew it was him because i had seen him jogging and he asked me for directions <laughs> and I, and i went hey aren't you <laughs> you know and he got nervous and then i said oh, i'm the doors drummer and then he stopped walking backwards he was i don't he had motorcycle boots and a hat and this stuff on backstage at the rock hall and 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 this Grip, a, a guy, a, a tech guy, was standing next to us and we were talking. And this tech guy says, oh, are you guys joggers? Having no realization that you're, this is the greatest songwriter of the 20th century. <laughs> a lot of people that are listening have no idea of the years you spent hanging out with Coleman Barks, Robert Bly, all of that work that you've done. I mean, how did, how did you even meet? Uh, I was struggling through a second divorce and uh, I went to a men's conference and, uh, whoa, did that feed me mind blowing. And this was not a conference to diss women. This was a conference to copy what women have done for years. It, only that gender getting together and sharing feelings. Oh my God. And it was so healing. And so, you know, I couldn't help myself. And I said to Robert, you know, I could do something under Night Frogs and I could do something under Rilke, your translation of Rilke. And, and we did. And we had some fabulous moments. And, and I, I have a chapter in The Seekers, my new book on Robert. Great fun. There was a, a passage in uh, Night Frogs where he had a line about, what did I not see in my father? Something like that. And he had a few more lines about that subject. 
and we're playing along in front of the audience. And I get this idea to start to stagger the beat like he can't see his father. I'm going doom 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 I didn't tell him. Oh my God, did his eyes light up when I did that? Uh, you know, and, and he loved it, but it was so in the moment that um, I mean, I've done it with you. I don't know. You, yeah. you just intuit this shit. The words always tell you how to drum. Now, one of your old pals, I think, is is Jim Keltner, isn't it? Oh, the best, the best. So, for you out there who aren't familiar, Jim is an incredible studio musician, actually played jazz in the early days with Albert Stinson, played like bebop and uh, became uh, the most respected studio drummer. And you, you can't, you can't name a band that he hasn't played with just all of them traveling Wilburys, for example, mm. Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, you know, all of them. And and he has a wonderful feel. He he's kind of kind of laid back, but just jazz influenced. Like me, he he knows the the pulse. First job is the pulse, and then if you can kind of comment and spur on and improvise a little around what's going on in the moment, you're feeding the ensemble, like I did with you. We we had fun. We really had fun. We really had fun. We will have fun in the future. My friend, we will. That's the thing, Martin. Like you asked about me getting out. Before, uh, occasionally I do poetry readings and hand drummings. If I'm in the moment with 200 people, it doesn't have to be 2,000 at Madison Square Garden. I'm fed. It's the road, not the goal. I mean, I would like a bestseller, but you, know, you do what you can do. And I've had some moments with you where just, and you know, the audience can feel it. I mean, if the audience is 2000 people, that's one person. And if the performer is a duet like me and you or a 40 piece orchestra, that's another person. The two of you are going to dance tonight. <laughs> that's the excitement of the live thing we're missing so much. Metaphorically, you don't know whether that dance is going to be a salsa or a waltz or whatever. And that's what's so exciting. It just feeds humanity. John, you've been so generous with your time. And I think finishing on a note of feeding humanity is a really good one. Yeah. Bless you, man. Ta-ta for now. Ta-ta for now. Cheerio. Cheerio. So here I am again, talking to you. My old cat Harry next to me. Hello, Harry. Looking up at a broody Dartmoor sky, wondering if it's about to piss down. And realising that this is the last conversation of the smoke hole sessions. I'm not saying this is the end, but I'm not saying that it isn't the end either. I don't know. And we've become pretty good at living with that kind of not knowing, haven't we, in the last year or so. But what I do know as I squat in my chair is how grateful I feel. I'm thinking about the 
bright wit of Tommy Tiernan and the sheer guts of Jay Griffiths in that police cell. I'm thinking about the visioning of David Keenan, having a bit more of that. The storytelling of Jan Blake, the story curation of John Mitchinson. And who can forget hunkering down with Rabbi Ariel Berger and that plea to make space for the peacemakers. We remember the Blakean freshness of Mark Rylance and his insistence on seeing the world anew, whatever it chucks at us, and not just reheating the meal of various mediocre successes, fleeting successes, over and over. And we dipped into the magic with Natasha Khan, didn't we? And just now I'm feeling the good, companionable, convivial warmth of John Densmore, and a very interesting life that he's living. I think conversations like that help us get made. I really do. The big ones, the, the real drop. It's not beards and breasts and driving licenses that get us made. It's circumstance and our capacity to continually deepen into it, to see the to see the sacred ground that we're actually walking on. And those conversations have been substantial to me. I find myself going for walks by rivers afterwards and falling into reverie, but the most delicious kind of reverie, the reverie that leads to participation, growing my own hands back, breaking enchantments, kicking the robbers out of the house. So, my friends, I do hope I'll see you down the road soon. Or maybe we'll be back by this fire. Or, if all of that fails, I'll see you in the Piper's Corner Bar in Dublin City. Thanks to Ben Adicott for producing Smokehole. Don't forget to check out my new book, Smoke Hole, Looking to the Wild at the Time of the Spyglass, available in all good bookshops. And bad too. <laughs>